Hey there, brewery lovers. Welcome to another episode of The Brew Daddies. I'm Richard. I'm here by myself today. Adam couldn't make it, but I am in D.C. at the Hyrick House Museum with Executive Director Kimberly Bender. Thank you so much for joining me, Kimberly. Thank you for coming and hanging out with us today. It's such a beautiful house. Now, those of you in D.C. may know about the Hyrick House, but if you're outside of D.C., this may be something new. Why am I at a house talking to an executive director of a museum when this is a show about breweries? Well, Christian Hyrick was the oldest brewer uh, and the most successful brewer in the District of Columbia. But I'm going to let Kimberly tell us more about Christian Hyrick. So Christian Heyrich was, as you said, the most successful brewer, we think, in Washington, D.C. He was born in 1843 in a small town called Heine in Germany, which um, would be a little bit north of the Bavarian border. And um, his parents were tavern keepers, so he basically grew up from birth with beer. His parents brewed the beer for the town and then had, you know, ran this little tavern out of a castle. And then when, by the time he was 14, unfortunately, he was orphaned. He was apprenticed as a brewer butcher, which was, it went, they went together and did this whole wandering apprenticeship around um, Europe until he was about 24. So he, in those 10 years, not only became more worldly and saw, the, saw Europe, but he also learned how to brew beer. Um, when he was 20, his sister being over in America is trying to get him to come trying to convince him. And he waits until after the Civil War. And then he takes a ship and comes and lands in Baltimore where she lives. Um, there's a little fun story that he liked to tell about that trip. So he ends up getting going over to Liverpool in England to get on the ship to come to America. And um, they take off and people start dying. People start getting sick with cholera. And he's very proud of himself when he talks about this in his autobiography, because he says, I, everyone knows you don't drink the water, you know, you drink the beer. And so he had been very good about only drinking the beer on the ship. And he thinks that's what saved his life. And the ship ended up actually having to turn around and go back. He had to wait in port to get onto another ship and come over. So he went to Baltimore. Goes to Baltimore. His sister is there, Elizabeth, with her husband, who is a ship captain in Fells Point. So he lands, goes over to her house. He stays there and joins the community, the German-American community there, and comes back and after you know being in that community for a bit, decides he really doesn't want to be stuck in the German-American community. I think he, fe he felt like he wasn't learning, learning English very quickly. And he, I think, saw bigger things outside of that community for himself and partners up with a guy and comes to D.C. And they start renting a brewery that is just a block south of where we're sitting right now, which is, was called Schnell's Brew Pub when they got there. In 1872. So wait, so 1872, this guy, Christian Heyrich, open basically rents a brew pub. Rents a brew pub. In D.C. Yes, on 20th Street, um, in between M and N. Which Trying is to where think if there's a brew pub there now. There is not. There's a giant office building, okay. glass, and, glass and steel. But, you know, he was at that site starting in 1872 and... 
ended up moving or building a new brewery facility in 1895. But that building, the buildings on that site that the brewery was in were there until the 70s. Oh, wow. So people probably, rem- some people in the city probably still remember what that looked like. So he and his partner start this brewery. He is, Christian's kind of getting annoyed with his partner because he feels like he's doing all the work and the partner's taking all the credit. Their partnership ends within the year. Wow. And Christian buys the whole thing from Schnell. Schnell proceeds to die. And Christian marries his widow, Amelia. They did things like that back then, didn't they? they? (laughs) When he took over, um, Schnell's brewery had been brewing wheat beer and he um, changed it over to lager. And that was... You know, as we know, lager became the thing. Um, mm-hmm. And that was probably why he became so successful because, you know, he was a German bringing his, his Reinheitsgebot lager to America. And he and Amelia were running this brew pub and she dies. He's very sad. He ends up marrying the sister of the treasurer of the brewery, Matilda. Okay. Um, Matilda helps build this beautiful mansion that we're sitting in and probably was responsible for a lot of the decorating choices in here. And then they built this house eight, from 1892 to 1894, and then she dies immediately after it's completed. Okay. So just to put some things in context here, he so they started building this house in 1892, and at that point he'd, been, he'd owned his own brewery yep. for 20 years? 20 years. 20 years at that point. So he bought Schnell's, yep. started bloggering, and that's... So when he bought Schnell's, is that when it became the... the, he, the Heirich- he changed the name, yes, sorry. Okay. That's he right. changed the name to the Christian Heirich Brewing Company. Okay. And we actually see... We have two pictures of the exact same building where it says Schnell's on the side, and then it says Christian Heyrich on the side. Ah, uh, okay. Um, and he... Um, so he's so when they build this house, he's been running this brewery 20 years. He's yeah. obviously very successful. He's selling lager, which is now the new favorite, favorite beer of yeah. everybody here. And he's also starting to think about marketing and how he's... He, you know, in D.C., there were a lot of local brew pubs in your neighborhood Mm -hmm. but he was starting to distribute to bars and restaurants making relationships becoming a bit more widely distributed um we let me let me interrupt you real quick so up until the the time that he you know he basically builds this house it's really just the brew pub right we're still learning every day about this stuff because it really had never been something that anyone before us delved super deeply into. But we actually just recently found R.A. Shapiro from, mm-hmm. yeah, he somehow in his front yard found a bottle. Um, they were doing, our backyard was, they were excavating. He found a bottle that said Schnell's on it. Oh, wow. Which I had never thought that Schnell's even bottled. I right. always thought it was on site consumption. Mm-hmm. So there's some evidence that even before Christian, there was some level of distribution, even if it was just the neighborhood. Right. But he... He was, I think almost immediately he started to try to distribute and little by little in the 20 years from 1872 until this house was built in 1892, he is making improvements to that facility. So what starts off as a small looking 
very small looking industrial building turns into this massive, and I wish we could show everybody the picture, this massive facility by the time, you know, by the, se- you know, the one the, that's knocked down in the 70s is this giant, giant facility. So throughout this time from 1872 till 1892, when he, uh, or when he builds this house in 1895, really, when he builds his other brewery facility, he is making small improvements or even larger improvements on that brewery, right? Like you don't just sit there, you grow. Right, right. So, so he's adding capacity and yeah, adding and new equipment. Right, and maybe like a shed for the, or like, you know, a stable for the horses. And he's like a malt, you know, storage facility. And I don't think that we consciously think of this today, but everything back then was, this is pre-electricity. Mm-hmm. So everything is being operated with fire, of right, some kind. Right. And so fire is like a scary part of your everyday life and it is a real threat to everything. So he suffers a series of fires and one of which almost wipes him out completely. And also during this time he's sort of experimenting with joining like the boards of a ba- the board of a bank and all these other things and he gets burned by all these other uh. businesses and he's like I need more control of this. I need to build something that's more stable than this fire, like fiery <laughs> business. <laughs> right. um, but it, no, but it is growing. It's not just sitting there okay. static. And he is distributing more and more um, and forming relationships and becoming a household name in the city. You know, we're seeing signs up in bars and restaurants with his name on it. He p- starts putting ads out. At that time, there was no like, FDA. So, right. People could die if they drank bad beer. So he was he was putting out ads that were talking about how pure his beer was, like that they were using clean water, um, that you wouldn't get sick from his beer. And so he was really he was really great. And we see over time that he was really great at capitalizing on whatever was the issue of the moment, and testified that he wanted there to be a pure food and drug act. So by 1890. He has capitalized the brewery at nine hundred thousand dollars. Wow! Yeah, so that's that's huge. Pretty nice. I don't even know what the equivalent would be today. Uh, a lot. Yeah, a, a lot. lot. And he uses the money to, or the success to build a state of the art fireproof brewery at the site of what is now the Kennedy Center. So right on the Potomac. Wow. And it has a gymnasium in it for his staff. Um, it has an ice making plant they build later on there. It has this sort of water filtration system that supposedly uses gravity to clean it. So he, at the same time, pretty much that he builds that brewery, he builds this house, which is also quote unquote fireproof. And maybe the first supposedly fireproof house in Washington, D.C. Wow. So, so. Just just to make sure that that it, I, I want to dwell on this for just a second okay. that you know we're in Christian Hyrick's home, yep, uh, which is gorgeous, and we'll talk more about sort of some of this stuff in a minute. But he, you know, at this time, the very end of the 19th century, he's a household name in D.C. Everybody knows his beer. He's now distributing probably widely across the city. And he builds this state-of-the-art, fireproof, 
big, mm-hmm. big brewing facility on the site that is now the Kennedy Center. Correct. So his brewery, it was essentially torn down to build the Kennedy, to build the Kennedy Center in 1964, 62, something like that. Yeah. And they were, if you look at the pictures of them side by side, they were of somewhat equivalent size. So if you can think about this giant factory, basically, on wow. Potomac. Wow. Brick, not white, gleaming. Sure. But, but that's, that, that just, that, that's, I'm glad you said that because that gives, gives you some scale, especially since you're listening and everyone is picturing these things as we talk mm-hmm. about them. If you can picture the Kennedy Center and then take it away and replace it with a brewery right. of roughly the same size, that's how big this facility that he, that he built here was. And sometimes I think today, if people are familiar with craft breweries, it can be a fairly small facility with sure. a few tanks. I mean, this was a massive manufacturing plant with multiple buildings and taking up city blocks. Wow. Awesome. That's really cool. Okay. Let's see. Let's move on a little bit because I want to, I mean, we've sort of established who this person was, who Mm -hmm. Christian Heyrich was. He's the biggest brewery in DC. His name is everywhere. Let's, Let's talk a little bit about this house he built because the house isn't just, it's not just a DC mansion. Like you, you know, if you're, if you go around, we're in DuPont Circle, right by DuPont Circle, and there are a lot of big, stately old homes in DuPont Circle, and there's a lot of stately old homes from the late 19th century in DC. But this house is, I would say, unique <laughs> to these houses well, for a number of reasons. Well, it, it's unique now walking down the street on this block in DuPont Circle because this is the half of the circle that didn't really retain a lot of its original historic buildings. So we're like this crazy old sandstone dark castle surrounded by glass office buildings. Right. Yeah, it stands out. (laughs) So it's kind of fun in that way because there is architecture like this around the city, but it sort of blends in because they're on corners next to other row houses that are similar. But we're just like sitting here. Being hovered around, yeah, by this glass. You can't miss this sort of walking down the street. And if there there is actually another one um, of the so the the style of this house is called Richardsonian Romanesque, and yeah, it has a style. Um, And there is um, a very similar looking, like of almost the same time period, house on the corner of Sixteenth and Corcoran, which actually does blend in so much more. That's what I was thinking of a little bit because it's on this street of mansions, first mm-hmm. of all, and then it's surrounded by row houses of the same type of brick. And this house where we're, where we're sitting is on the corner and on the edges of it, it looks like actually it was originally intended for there to be attached row houses. So it kind of would have blended in with the rest of the neighborhood, but we don't anymore. Not anymore. <laughs> well, what are some of the unique things about this house besides sort of where it is and how it looks in the neighborhood? Like when okay. he built it, what are some of the things he did that made this house unique? So as I said, it, it was, we call it the first fireproof house in Washington. We haven't tested it and we hope <laughs> not to. Um, but that meant that the interior construction was made of concrete and iron. So the we're looking around at the walls right now that are painted and Um, There's a lot of molding and stuff and woodwork, but that's all decorative. And it's a layer of plaster over this um, really tough 
interior construction. Like iron and concrete yes. is what the walls are made of. So we're yeah, not, like it's not reinforced wood. concrete yeah. and masonry on the inside. You, you can't like knock down a wall. <laughs> it's right. right. You can barely hang anything on the wall, to be honest. And that exterior is made of sandstone and brick. It's very dark and ominous with lots of carved figures and, yeah. you know, and then inside we have pretty much um, retained, I would say like 90% of the original interior decorations, at least especially on the museum floors, which is the basement, the first floor and the second floor. So all of the woodwork was done, and this is a theme throughout the house and what we do today also, um, all the woodwork was hand carved by local German American or German immigrants. So we have this extremely intricately carved um, like mantle work and woodwork around the fireplaces and then around the door frames. And then a a lot of the original moldings that are plaster around the top, very ornate, very ornate light fixtures that are all the original combination gas and electric fixtures, which were state of the art for the time. And notice they never upgraded them. I always think that's really weird. And then when it was built, the house had hot and cold running water to all floors. It goes from the basement up to the fourth floor. There was both electric and gas wired through the house, even though electricity would have been a little bit unstable at the time. They were just kind of, it was just starting to happen. A lot of this stuff was kind of on the cutting edge of new. I've heard some of our guides call it the smart house of its time. Ah. And I think that's probably true. Well, it's definitely, I mean, when you walk in, it looks like, it looks exactly like it would have looked not long after it was built, other than things have aged a little bit, obviously. It's a time capsule. But it very much is a time capsule. And if you get a chance to come here, you spend some time looking at the woodwork because it's truly, truly fantastic. Like really it's a kind of craftsmanship that no nobody really gets anymore. Right. Um, and it's just just absolutely beautiful. But I know my listeners really want to get back to us talking about <laughs> beer. They don't so. want to hear about decorative arts? <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> but let's talk about beer some more. Okay. Um, so I have one quick question. So we, we talked a little bit about, okay, so he opened this huge facility on the Potomac. And then Prohibition. Let's talk about what did he do during Prohibition? <laughs> So D.C. got prohibition early because we're always the experiment here in Washington for the federal government. They just like to see what happens. So 1917 on Halloween Eve at midnight, (laughs) prohibition happens, goes into effect in Washington. D.C., okay. He, up till that point, is fighting it tooth and nail. Naturally. And I don't know how many people understand this because I think it's very important especially to parallel 2018 political vibes, um, political world. A lot of what triggered or what pushed Prohibition forward was likely the fact that we entered World War I against Germany. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, the, as we talk, I talked about earlier, he was his brewery became popular because he brought the German style of lager here and people went crazy over it. It was, you know, we know it's super drinkable and we can talk about what lager actually is versus like what 
you know, craft lager. I'm hoping my listeners have a good sense of that. (laughs) So, so beer and Germans were a tied thing in people's heads and it was who owned the breweries and who owned those businesses. So the Wilson administration, you know, Wilson got reelected on his actual campaign slogan was he kept us out of war and then immediately turned around and got us into like, Hey, we're, we're entering world war one. Um, so he had to get people to change their minds really fast and get on board. So they actually implemented a propaganda campaign, like a coordinated document, very well documented propaganda campaign against Germans, German Americans. Mm -hmm. Um, and Heyrich was targeted as part of that. And, the Department of Justice came and investigated him at his home. They went out to his farm. They went to his brewery. We have it all in their diaries and journals about how devastating it was to them that they were all of a sudden being considered potentially enemies of the state when he really considered himself a fine American citizen. There were rumors in the paper that he committed suicide. People were planting all kinds of things. There were rumors that his farm that the concrete silos on his farm were actually missile missile silos pointed at um, Washington, D.C. And this was really devastating to them. And it's happening at the same time that prohibition is sort of being introduced as an idea of like, you know who we, you know, what we really need to do is get rid of this spear. That's the scourge, you know, of America. So prohibition comes 1917, pretty quickly after we enter World War One. And so it's like a double whammy for him. He's now gone through this emotional like questioning of his loyalties at the same time that his business is his lifelong career is being taken away from him. And he at this point is, I think, in his 70s or almost in his yeah, he's in his 70s. Yeah. Almost 80s. And so he is, but he decides he's not going to close. He decides that he wants to try to figure out how to continue to operate during this time. So his first idea is he's going to make a non-alcoholic apple drink. Oh, lovely. Called Liberty Apple. And they clean out all the tanks. They try to get it, you know, they try to sterilize them. He buys, I think it was something like $100,000 worth of apples or something, and makes this apple drink, which proceeds to ferment. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so we have this really sad newspaper article with his photo in it. Like he's looking down at the apple drink going down the drain because they make him dump it. Sure. But before uh. he dumps it, they let for like one day only they let they they lift the um, prohibition rules on him and let people come and buy it from him for one day only. And they have cars lined up around the corner and like people from the Senate, they're talking in the newspaper, like and a limousine from the Senate is here to pick up some beer, some uh, apple drink. So that doesn't work. Um, but he does have an ice making plant on site. So they continue to make ice. He doesn't bootleg. That's a, and that's an important point, yeah. right? That he, and it may have had something to do with all the scrutiny that he's under at the time, right? He's also very, very much a rule, like he's a law, like law maybe abiding. not a rule, but like a law abiding person. And maybe he had a whole thing of like proving his patriotism. Yeah. But also we shouldn't forget that part of the reason why he's able to build this house and also how he's able to survive during that time is he's actually over the course of all of this been buying up land 
throughout uh. the city. So he owned a big chunk of Tenley Town. Really? Yeah. He he owned. We think he may have been the largest non-governmental landowner in the city for a time. We're actually going to do a project next year to to confirm that or see what what really he owned in the city. Um, so he was making money off of the land. So he could he could have closed down and not worried about anything. It okay. wasn't that, you know. So he wasn't in a situation where uh, prohibition, I mean, at this point, like you said, he was in his 70s, maybe 80s. I want to do the math in my head right now. <laughs> I think it would have he's been almost in late his 80s, 70s. Yeah. yeah, he would have been in his late 70s. And he's clearly very successful. And he's branched out beyond you know he's invested in real estate and other things um so he could just have he could have been fine been a very wealthy man and lived the rest of his life a very wealthy man without ever making another drop of beer right i think it was the principal yeah and and beer and beer (laughs) he was pissed (laughs) um it was devastating it really was devastating and devastating time for the family and also like um their youngest daughter, Carla, at the time was in elementary school. And we have her oral history talking about that time in her life. Somebody said to her, do you speak German? You spoke German at home. Do you speak German? She's like, I don't speak. I don't know how to speak German anymore because I decided people at school were calling me the little hun. And I decided I wasn't interested in any of that anymore. So it's also probably the reason why and why people still to this day mispronounce his name a lot that it doesn't look like it should be pronounced Heyrich. Mm -hmm. That's not the German pronunciation. You probably can say the German pronunciation better than I can. Heyrich. Heyrich. Yeah. And when people say that, I never correct them either. Um, but I think that that's the time during which he probably Americanized the pronunciation. Oh, I've been saying it in in our daily podcast, you know, we talk about what's going on in the area and I've, I've said, half a dozen times or more, <laughs> like the Herrick house is da 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 yeah. Now I know just call it the Herrick house. It can be whichever one you want. We <laughs> allow both. <All> right. <laughs> so yeah, that all sort of demonstrates how that era affected them. So so prohibition ends. Prohibition ends. And and he, he's still alive, which now, is very unusual. <laughs> so he's in now he's oh, thirty three, so he's ninety? Almost ninety. He is um ninety. Yeah. Yeah, so he's 90 years old, still alive, prohibition ends, and he says, ah, he I'm says, too old for a beer. I am opening this place back up. There you, you can't go. can't stop me. Again, he didn't have to. It was, right. I think it was the principle. And I think that's a re- it's a really good, talking about his age, I think, is a really good lesson for understanding why other breweries didn't open. So, you know, his peers were dead. Right. And it also is a good sort of lesson about why the brewery didn't last very long after he died because he didn't have the opportunity to really teach the next generation of people um, how to do what he had been doing, right? So there's such a huge gap in time that the next level of professionals aren't, don't exist. Right. So when he opens, he hires a brewer to come in, an old brewer to, to like bring it back. They um, get new equipment, clean everything up. And and he's he's had this, he's had the facility. Yeah, he doesn't. He didn't never closed it, never sold it. Never he's sold making it. Ice, just shut the doors. And then opens it opened back. Opened it back up again. Opens it back up. I think they like probably upgraded a bit. Probably. We still don't actually know the details of that. 
so much, but then keeps brewing until he dies. Um, up, he's still walking down or driving down to the brewery up to two weeks before he dies at the age of 102. Almost 103, right? Almost 103. And still going to the brewery almost every day. Yeah. Wow. So, that's what keeps you living long. <laughs> just so everybody else knows. That's what keeps you living. Beer will keep you alive. The one, I think, important thing that happens during that time, at least for us, is that the one not fireproof building at the brewery burns down. Uh. And it is their archives. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> and art department. So all in the newspaper article, it's like, all of the records since 1873 were stored in this building and there's uh. nothing left. So that's pretty devastating. Yeah. It must make your job harder. Yeah. It makes it a little bit harder. It's like putting together a puzzle. Okay. Well, we have been talking for a lot longer. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, it's, it's wonderful and it's great. It's, it's a great conversation. It's great to learn all this stuff. And I'm sure that the listeners are, are as interested as I am. But I want to be respectful of your time as well. So let's talk a little bit about today. Today. Right? Let's talk about what the Hyrick House is doing to support and work with local craft brewers. And, and, and before you answer that, I want one of the interesting things that I've learned over time as I've gotten involved in brewing and craft breweries is how much where we are today or in the direction that craft and the direction that craft brewing is moving is very much like pre-prohibition America. Um, we talk to a lot of breweries, you know, local craft breweries that are really hyper-locally focused. They do distribution, some of them, um, but brew pubs and, and going to places where the brew, beer is brewed on site mm-hmm. is becoming much more common. I mean, our last episode was about uh, Bad Wolf Brewing Company in Manassas, and that's a nano brewery. Mm-hmm. Like, they're doing 40-gallon batches um, but people love it and people come hang out. And so a lot of the craft breweries we're talking to and the brew pubs we've been talking to do have this sort of like, yeah, we're the neighbor, like we're mostly about the neighborhood that we're in. Right. Most of the people are coming here walking, you know, or riding their bikes and coming and hanging out here. And that's really sort of what pubs and bars were like, you know, pre-prohibition. And it's interesting to me that we're sort of moving back to that kind of, you've got your local neighborhood brewery and, and everybody's sort of selling their beer. Um, so you guys are doing a lot here to support that. So tell us, some about, tell us a little bit about that. Well, we are first the official headquarters of the DC Brewers Guild and um, helped incorporate them back, I think it was 2013. And we help support the DC beer week event that happened in August this year. And through that, it's actually, I actually started here at the same time, almost the same week that DC Brow opened up. Oh, wow. (laughs) So we've evolved at the same, at the same time that they evolved. And it's been great because it's allowed us to form relationships with them and sort of understand what they need as they evolve. And, you know, different breweries need different things. So we do now, and it, this has changed over time, but we do a lot of partner programs where, with local craft breweries, and it pairs with the history of the city, so it gives context to what they're doing today and to the character of the city and where they came from. 
And we are actually going to be doing more, a bit more educational sort of programming related to the breweries and having the brewers themselves speak about what they do. And you can stay tuned for that next year. But I think really we're just here to connect the city past to its present and and give that context. So why don't you just tell the listeners, uh, all of whom, of course, love craft beer, about some of the things that they should be checking out. First of all, how can they find out what's happening at the Hyrick House and some of the things that you, some of the events that you put on on a regular basis in your tours and things like that? So you can always go on our website, which is HyrickHouse.org, and Hyrick is spelled H-E-U-R-I-C-H. And that is also our handle on all social media, just at Hyrick House. Um, we always list all of our events, but regularly, almost like clockwork every week, we have public tours that are just a suggested donation. So anyone can come Thursdays, Fridays and Saturdays, 1130 a.m., 1 and 230 p.m. And those are always guided tours with one of our trained guides. You can also come every first Friday from 6 to 8 p.m. We participate in first, it's called DuPont Circle First Friday. It's an art walk, and that's a free program. You can just walk in, tour the first floor. We always have extra stuff going on. There's usually a brewery here. You can talk to the brewers a lot of the time, and we have maybe we'll have a craft going on, or you can come see any special exhibition that we have going on. And then We also twice a month have a beer tour where you can come after hours and the dates of that change every month. So just check the website and you get a flight of beer, which is um, specially designed by my staff that is supposed to sort of give you a bit of a lesson about the beer and usually features a particular brewery that month. And then um, you can take your beer on your tour around the house. So we sneak in a little history while you're getting some beer, um, which is what we try to do around here. We're tricking you with the beer, really. (laughs) Well, the history is fascinating to me. Uh, And it's really, I think, it's a shame that the archives got, got destroyed in a fire, but... The history, I mean, just looking at the place um, and looking at your office and seeing all of sort of the old signs, um, one of their one of their beers was called Senate, uh, which I think is hilarious. This is this was post prohibition, right? This was um, mostly post prohibition. Yeah, but it's it's you know it's fascinating to see the old bottles and the old signs and the old posters and things like that. Actually, starting in November. And keep your eye out for the date. We're going to have an exhibition in our carriage house. We have a gallery in our carriage house that will be featuring um, tons and tons of Hyrick Breweriana, so brewery memorabilia. Oh, wonderful. Um, super focused on that. And it will be probably one of our biggest exhibits that we've put on here. So I really think it's going to be great. Oh, that's fantastic. And a great way to really see what the business Yeah, and we'll like. definitely talk about that um, both, again, on, on Brew Daddies and on the DC Daily Brews. So Great. Yeah, subscribe to the DC Daily Brews and you will know what's coming. Well, listen, thank you so much, Kim. I really appreciate your taking this time, which is now twice as long as we had <laughs> expected it to be. I know you're super busy, but I know that our listeners have really gotten a lot out of the history of brewing, thanks to you and the work that you're doing. And I know that the folks in the craft brewing community here in D.C. and in the whole DMV 
benefit greatly from the work that you guys do to support local craft brewing and preserving the history of brewing and craft brewing in, in, in our region. So thank you so much. Thank you for chatting with me today. Mm-hmm.